Good morning, everyone. I am, as advertised, Owen Strand. There are not a lot of competitors for that name, as you might guess. It's a real joy to be with you. Uh, I'm a member here, a professor of systematic theology at Midwestern Seminary up north in the Northland, as we say here in Kansas City. And uh, it's a joy to, to be in this, uh, in this pulpit, not preaching, but teaching. So thankful to Pastor Rick and the elder board, Amiral, and others for the opportunity. Take that very seriously. This is a seriously biblical church, and so it's a joy to, to delve into contested but biblical things like biblical manhood and womanhood. These are controverted matters today, as we have talked about in previous weeks. For example, just in the headlines the last few days, if you're paying attention if maybe you were thinking, I think there's a Sunday school series coming up at my church on this. I wonder if there are current events that relate to manhood and womanhood as a subject in the headlines. The answer is yes, there are. For example, an Arizona Democratic senatorial candidate, Kirsten Cinema, was just uh, unearthed as saying the following in 2006. These women who act like staying at home, leeching off their husbands or boyfriends and just cashing the checks is some sort of feminism because they're choosing to live that life. Kind of a strange quote, one of these things that in the political news cycle has resurfaced in the last few years. That's a quote from 2006 from this female senatorial candidate in Arizona. The idea there, of course, that you identify is that if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're staying at home raising your kids, you're leeching off your husband or boyfriend. So that's how people are articulating what it means to be a stay-at-home mom today. Not usually the reason I hear given by a godly woman for staying home to leech off her husband. I'm not sure I would characterize stay-at-home momhood in those terms, but that's how we're hearing about these things today. It's always very important to know what our culture is saying about these kind of things as we dive into them. Or, if you wanted to quote another figure, the French president. French President Emmanuel Macron landed in the headlines also this week. This is just this week, okay? I limited myself to just this week in these first two instances at a Gates Foundation. Bill Gates, you know him? He's got more uh, billions than most countries do. So he's a philanthropist now, and he's got the Gates Foundation. Well, the Gates Foundation held an event and Emmanuel Macron, the uh, French president, came to it, and he said this in the course of talking about uh, Africa and developing nations, something relevant to our own church's life. Present me the woman who decided, being perfectly educated, to have seven, eight, or nine children. Now, if you're listening carefully there, the implication is this. If a woman is well-educated, she will not have seven, eight, or nine children. And the French president was speaking against large families in Africa. Of course, there are different challenges with, with large families, feeding them and, and other things. We can acknowledge that, particularly in, in uh, underprivileged places. And yet, this is another statement of bias against a woman who would choose, with her husband, of course, to have a large family. To have seven, eight, or nine children is now seen as retrograde, whereas in past centuries in America, that choice would have been seen as virtuous. Nowadays, uh, this wasn't expressed directly in these remarks, 
but you're seen as uh, affecting the environment, really, uh, overcrowding the earth, overpopulating the earth if you have a large family, taking the scarce resources that are in this place and hoarding them for your own family. Did you know that if you fit every person in the world, if you took every single person in the world and fit them into one state, you could fit everybody into Texas? Every single person that walks the earth could fit. Now, it would be a little uncomfortable, I admit, uh, but in Texas, uh, it would be warm. We would have pretty good barbecue, not great barbecue. So, uh, there, there are, in fact, abundant natural resources. We have regularly peddled before us in the media a scarcity mentality when in truth. Of course, there are things to consider there and think carefully about, but we have tons of resources. And the predictions in the 19th century of Thomas Malthus, M-A-L-T-H-U-S, a British economist that articulated that there would be a population crisis, that the world was not going to be able to meet the rising population growth with a, with a food supply that matched it. Some of you have heard about this, Malthusian economics, this is 19th century stuff. It was very paranoid, and Malthus called for sterilization and other measures in the 19th century uh, in order to stave off that supposed crisis that never materialized. So, uh, Wayne Grudem and others have written helpfully about how God is a creator and has created a world with abundant resources. I say all of that because that's part of why people critique large families. That's part of why people today critique couples who choose to have children at all today. So these things really matter. Uh, these are live issues. This is live ammo today. You have the president of France uh, basically maligning large families, something we will never do in a church like this, in a movement like ours. Then you can jump the tracks to manhood. There's been a little bit said about manhood in our time. One university in Canada uh, set up a confessional booth so that men could come and confess the sins of toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity. And in truth, masculinity is often seen today as toxic. Now, we can look at men in a fallen world and we can say, of course, men are going to sin, right? And men are aggressive and men are uh, relatively strong in many cases at least, and so men can uh, do some damage in our world, and we can be honest about that. In fact, we call men and women alike to full repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. So let that be said. And yet, we want to be very careful and think well about a climate that encourages, in particular, young men. Here we are, parents, ready? Young men to think of their manhood, to think of their masculinity as in some form poisonous. That's really where our culture is. In different forms and different sectors, young men are learning, if they're paying attention, that by virtue of being a man, there's something wrong with them. There's something toxic with them. They're the ones who are ruining society. They're the ones who are, who are doing damage. By virtue not of their sin, which we totally affirm, by virtue of their manhood, simply by virtue of being a man. And as I say, young men in particular are hearing this. University of North Carolina, Tar Heels, started something called the Men's Project. And here's the question that leads uh, the intro to the Men's Project at UNC, a huge, right, state school, very influential state school in America. How has the concept of masculinity 
the website asks, contributed to the perpetration of violence in our society. So there again, the, the link is that the very concept of masculinity, of maleness, perpetrates violence. Not sinful manhood, like sinful womanhood, causing problems in the world, as is the case, as we know from Scripture. No, no, no. Manhood is really the original sin there. You get that? Manhood is, at least in some segments of our society and our culture, original sin. And if we could stamp out aggressive manhood, then our society's and culture's problems would be solved. That's the presupposition behind such a question. That's a leading question for those of you in the practice of law right there for UNC. Or Gettysburg College, a mandatory freshman orientation training this August. If you went to Gettysburg College, which is, as you could guess, in Pennsylvania, male students had to watch a documentary which uh, argued in part that the three most destructive words a boy can hear growing up are, you ready? The three most destructive words a boy can hear. That which most warps a boy's soul. Here they are. Be a man. Be a man. If you say that to a boy, you are effectively destroying him. That's what Gettysburg College taught its young male students. So any kind of uh, man up phraseology, you may have said that at some point on a field of competition or something like this, uh, any kind of be a man call, that is now seen as effectively calling out violence in the soul of a young man and unleashing him as an agent of destruction in culture. Well, all of this gives us a little picture for where we are today in 2018. When we go to the Bible to teach about manhood and womanhood, we are teaching timeless truth. We are teaching the very mind and will of God, but we have to know that our society is, is not unchanging. Our society is very much changing. So the cues you're hearing, the material you're getting in secular culture and society is very different than you would have heard, for example, in The Greatest Generation. Uh, sometimes read biographies of leaders and warriors and politicians and this sort of thing, just to glean what I can from their lives. You know, I, I have a kind of ongoing reading project in Winston Churchill, uh, kind of always reading in Winston Churchill just because he's such an epically courageous man. I, read a, I was reading a biography of George Patton, the great uh, World War II general, very conflicted man. Uh, you see some light and dark in him, to be sure. But you see in those kind of figures uh, strong manhood used for virtuous ends. And so, growing up 100 years ago, 80 years ago, that would much more have been your understanding of, of what a man should be. But today, things have changed. We're in a gender-neutral age. We're in an age that promotes so-called tr transgender identity and other views. And so, uh, we're in a different time. We, in other words, face major challenges as we begin our look at both manhood and womanhood together. We face major challenges in constructing a biblical understanding of men and a biblical understanding of women. In our first section this morning, on our first day, 
we're going to cover seven challenges we face. They're there on the handout in the very nice, thick paper you got. I really like that paper. Thank you, Kathy, for that. So we're going to cover seven, and then we're going to just put down six points that help us begin to form a vision for the sexes. Handouts are over there. There's mad dash there even now. Don't be toxic, men, as you grab a handout, okay? <laughs> be, be gracious. This morning is going to be a little bit different from other weeks. My other five weeks that I've graciously been given to, to run through this material, I'm going to dive into the text our other weeks together. Um, this morning, I, I want to lay things out as we're already doing. This morning, we're just trying to take, uh, uh, take our measure of things, look at these issues from a 30,000-foot perspective. We will be diving into the text, first two weeks on manhood, then two weeks on womanhood, then a wrap-up synthesis week after that. So, come buckled up and ready to go for biblical study in successive weeks. This is an intro week. First challenge we face then, friends. Some people have not been taught the Bible. And when I'm talking about challenges we face, I mean you and me. I mean us. When somebody summons us to study biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, we might think, well, okay, I haven't really been taught anything about this. Are, are these even realistic categories? Do these things even matter? I mean, things like the gospel matter. Biblical uh, categories like salvation matter and judgment matters and Scripture matters and the doctrine of God, those things really matter. I'm with you there because I'm a Christian, but manhood and womanhood? Well, part of why we might have that perspective on these things is because some people simply not have, have not been taught, excuse me, the Bible. They haven't sat under for years, for decades, an expository ministry they haven't heard the Old Testament preached as the very Word of God, and they haven't heard the New Testament preached as the very Word of God, the New Covenant being the covenant, of course, which binds the modern church today, which instructs us in a direct sense in terms of how we live. So many people out there, many professing evangelicals, have, have been taught very little about these concepts. Many churches in the mid and late 20th century decided, in fact, not to tackle these kind of issues, not to tackle related matters like divorce, for example, because people in their congregations were going through real-life situations, and churches did not want to offend people. And that instinct persists today in the 21st century, where many churches are scared of a series like this. Praise God, we have a church that wants to dive into these things, that sees biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood as not only, eh, not only okay, it's not only fine, it's there, it's in the Bible, we'll teach it, but as good, as glorious. If it is taught in the Bible, my friends, it is a doctrine worth believing and worth loving, no matter what no matter what specific area we're talking about, if it is taught positively in the Scripture, it is not only true, it is good. And you need it. And I need it desperately. We're not picking and choosing when it comes to the text. We're not doing theological or ethical buffet when it comes to the Bible. We are gluttons for what God teaches us in the Word of God. We want all of it. We don't want some of it. We want all of it. We want all of it to shape us. And we need to know, of course, today that even this first 
first matter is very much challenged today. I, I engaged in my work for Midwestern uh, some comments by the very popular pastor Andy Stanley, who uh, has just come out with a new book called Irresistible, in which he effectively argues, I'm not making this up, I'm not speaking, this isn't a hot take, okay, on a cold morning. Uh, Stanley effectively argues that the Old Testament should be disconnected from Christian faith and Christian apologetics and Christian witness. You shouldn't really preach it. It's, it's basically just the history of Israel. It's nothing more. The ethics and values of the Old Testament are outmoded. And so, if we'll stop preaching it, and if we'll stop evangelizing based off of it, and if we'll stop using formulations like the Bible says, that's a direct point Stanley makes, you should not say phrases like the Bible says on different matters, then we will see floods of people enter our churches and embrace the Christian faith. Okay, just <laughs> take stock of where we are in 2018. This is where we are. This is why people don't know much about biblical manhood and womanhood, that kind of perspective, and that kind of instinct to leave a doctrine behind, to abandon it on the battlefield because it's taking fire and back away from it, that's an instinct that a lot of preachers are embracing today and are going to continue to embrace as our secular culture continues to secularize and continues to look askance at people like you and like me. Those comments that I began with, those, those are strong and sharp words against my people, against you, against us. A stay-at-home mom who is less offensive, culturally speaking, in this super-divided political age, yeah, where everybody disagrees with everybody on a second-by-second -second basis, who is less controversial than a stay-at-home mom? She's, by definition, trying to raise her kids well and love them. She's not in the fray. She's trying to shape these kids for eternity. That is who is drawing fire. That's who's being attacked by the president of France for no good reason. So, this is where we are. So, so a challenge we face, people haven't been taught the Bible. We're going to teach the Bible, okay? Second challenge we face, some people have not seen biblical truth lived out well. So, some folks are from a, a strong Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church, praise God for that, but then there's this whole thing called Christian practice, the Christian life that flows from Christian doctrine, biblical teaching, yes? It's not just a matter of what we intellectually receive in our minds as believers. That is a very strong component of Christianity. But then that truth that we take in shapes us and transforms us. It gives us new affections, to use a Jonathan Edwards word, if I can sneak that into my talk. We're supposed to, in other words, not only know the truth, we are. You've got to know the truth. If you don't know the truth, you don't know anything. But then we're supposed to live according to the truth, be shaped by the truth, be transformed, Romans 12, by the truth. But some people, even in doctrinally sound churches, uh, are from families where these matters uh, of biblical manhood or womanhood, they weren't lived out well. They saw wreckage where they should have seen beauty. Uh, they saw pain where there should have been joy. Uh, they saw a man who didn't lead well, for example, who who wasn't a Christ-like head and, and who took his authority in a bad direction. They saw a, a woman, a wife, 
who didn't love her husband and didn't submit to him and was bitter against him. And, and so, a lot of people, even if they've heard some teaching on biblical manhood and womanhood, they're a little gun-shy about it because they may not have seen it lived out well. Well, that's a challenge. That presents me, uh, teaching this Sunday school class, with a challenge because that disposes you. If that's your background in some form, that disposes you to kind of be a little bit um, uh, standoffish when it comes to the strong teaching of the Word of God. So, that's a challenge that we face today. And that certainly is going to be a challenge, by the way, in terms of evangelism. Because supposedly, our culture, secular American culture, has left behind the kind of outdated puritanical ethics and theology that I'm going to happily serve up to you this morning. And so, our culture is now a veritable utopia, right? So, all sorts of people are just thriving personally, socially, psychologically, sexually. Yes? They're just thriving. It's an era of happiness like never before, correct? Incorrect. <laughs> Incorrect, tragically. People are very much suffering today as any kind of complementarian foundation of the sexes has been dynamited in the public square. Now men don't really have a standard. Now women don't really have protection uh, in different ways. And now um, sex is just something you enter into because of feelings. There's, there's no shape to it. There's no definition to it. There's no form to it. It's just a momentary encounter with one other person or multiple people. It doesn't really matter. There's no script for sexuality, and that is causing untold damage to people. The Me Too movement, for example, wasn't really read this way by our secular media, but is itself a problem that has arisen from the sexual re revolution, because there aren't guidelines that really guide sex and, and marital interest and romantic interest and these sorts of things. There's other problems to mention as well, but this is not a super happy age. This is an age when lots and lots of people are struggling. So, the people we evangelize coming into the church are going to have suffered, at least in a good number of cases, greatly. And, and what we do with the Word of God and the gospel of grace as the Spirit works is we put them back together. But they're going to need serious care along these lines. They, they don't know what it means to be a biblical man. People out there in the broader culture don't know at all what it means to be a biblical woman. In, in many cases, they don't know. How are they going to know? Faithful Christians like you telling them, putting these things back together. It's not just a matter of proclaiming the gospel, in other words. We, we proclaim the gospel every chance we get. It's also a matter of unfolding the wisdom of God in His Word from every page of Scripture on all these doctrines that matter so greatly. Third, our culture has trained us to not recognize the sexes. We're in a gender-neutral age. We're in an androgynous age. Uh, boys now dress and look increasingly like girls. Girls now look and dress increasingly like boys. We, we don't even necessarily know that there are such things as boys and girls today, today as men and women. These are contested matters. So, we, in other words, we don't have our eyes open to even recognize that there are such a thing as the sexes. Even that phrase, 
the sexes. You think, why, why isn't he using gender? Shouldn't he be using the term gender? That's what everybody uses. The sexes is a better term than gender. I, I use gender on occasion. Sometimes I do. I don't, I don't think like if you use it, a theologian jumps up from behind a curtain and zaps you or something like that. That's not, what, that's not my point. But I, the, the term the sexes refers to something that is hard and fast and, and, and traditional and fixed. And the term gender refers to something that is more fluid. It's more perceived. When we're talking about the sexes, we're talking about that which God has made. This is something we have to recognize. This isn't something you get bonus points for recognizing. This is God's invention. This is God's design. So, our culture has trained us not to recognize the sexes, and that creates all sorts of problems. Fourth, and very relatedly, our culture has indoctrinated us so that we see distinctiveness as bad. If there's any kind of distinction, if men want to go and get together and, uh, I don't know, have outings on a regular basis, if you follow secular news coverage, that sort of thing will be seen as bad. Uh, men's clubs, for example, that were very common in the 19th and 20th century. Those have largely gone away. Everything needs to be uh, gender integrated and these sorts of things. And I, I'm not here to apologize for, you know, men's golf clubs or something like that. I, I am here simply to point out that our culture has now trained us not to see that as in any form positive, but as negative. If there's distinctions, it's bad. That's, that's what we hear today. If people have different roles, that's bad. That's not a good thing. Uh, if, if we aren't all doing exactly the same thing, and if the sexes aren't perfectly integrated, completely integrated in every workplace, holding all the same roles, that's bad. Distinctiveness is not a good value. This is going to be challenging for biblical Christians, because biblical Christians believe in the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity, in terms of doctrinal form, is one God, three persons. One God, there's unity, right? Theistic unity, one God. We're monotheists, but we're complex monotheists. One God, three persons. We don't hold what Islam holds. We don't hold what Judaism holds. Father, Son, Spirit. And if you actually look at the text of Scripture, you see Father, Son, and Spirit accomplishing the one plan of God, but filling different roles. And so we have a very different foundation on these matters than our culture does. We're going to have major challenges if we see then necessarily distinctiveness as bad. Fifth, resulting instinct is that we downplay the beauty and reality of manhood and womanhood. We downplay it. We jump immediately on these kind of discussions to the exceptions, to the nuances, to the things which we think disprove the rule. Well, listen, as we're going to see, there are nuances to talk about. There are gray areas on these matters. Acknowledge that right up front. It's right there, acknowledgement, okay? It's on the dais. But we have to, before we get to the gray areas, everybody wants to jump to that. You teach on this, you preach on this, everyone wants to jump to the gray areas. Before you get there, how about this? How about we savor the beauty of God's creation? How about we take joy in what God has made? God came up with manhood. God came up with womanhood. It's not our invention. We don't believe that we're descended from somehow some chance explosion of gases 
that nobody did anything to eventuate billions of years ago, leading to ever-increasingly complex life forms, leading to, you know, the simian race, apes and these sorts of things, and orangutans, leading to us eventually with gender-differentiated humanity, men and women. Well, that's quite a foundation for maleness and femaleness. Randomness, chance, nothingness, no design, no cause. That is not our foundation. We believe God made the man, and God made the woman, Genesis 2. Genesis 2 doesn't have God doing that in a very far-off sense, sitting back, speaking a word and doing. Genesis 2 has God doing it directly. Creates the man directly, creates the woman directly. There's all kinds of interesting things to talk about with Genesis 1 and 2. Evangelicals can have those discussions, and and good-hearted, good-minded evangelicals disagree over some things. Let that be said. But wow, our starting point is not with confusion about the sexes. It's that God made them. And He made them, guys, it's not just that He made them abstractly. He made them as a work of art. The man is a work of art. The man is fashioned by God's own hand. The woman is a work of art. When the man sees the woman initially in Genesis 2, he shouts. He exclaims with delight. He doesn't fight her. He doesn't try to, you know, dominate her off the bat, get her in a one-on-one basketball game or something like this and beat her. That's probably what I would try to do. No, he doesn't, he doesn't do, I'd probably lose. He doesn't do that. Look at me. He doesn't do that. He, he, he exclaims, this is now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's not, that's not factual. That's not a scientific disquisition on the composition of the woman. That's him delighting and exulting in the creative work of God to make this creature, the woman. She's beautiful to him. They dwell in harmony together. Friends, that's our foundation, okay? Before we get to gray areas, before we jump, we'll go there. We're going to go there in the successive weeks of this class. That's our foundation. You and I, I believe, are called to glory in boys and girls, manhood and womanhood. Six, the church has not always covered these matters, and so people don't know they're important. I've given word to this already. My point here is one of irony. Irony. Sometimes on my Twitter account, I have a hashtag, Lady Irony Strikes Again. I don't know where. I got that from somebody, Lady Irony Strikes, uh, some kind of uh, commentary writer out there somewhere, I suppose. And so I'll, I'll try to tr- tweet something about irony. Well, this is, this is lady irony striking because our culture is actually forcing our hand. Our culture is forcing us to talk about these things, right? Our culture is forcing dads and moms to talk about whether there's such a category as a transgender individual today in 2018, right? Yes? My parents had no such discussion with me in 1987. That feels like a very long time ago to say that. Wow. never said that in public. When I was growing up, that wasn't a con- we had conversations about boys and girls, my parents with me, training me in, in certain ways, but we didn't have, there was no category for this in terms of a normal feature of American culture, a transgender individual, somebody who's between the sexes, between manhood and womanhood, this kind of person, a gender non-conforming individual, these, these sorts of things. Uh, Prairie Village just had a council meeting this past week on whether there are, there's going to be uh, protection uh, in, in formal terms 
for those who are gender non-conforming, a, a non-discrimination ordinance, it's called, very similar to SOGI laws, sexual orientation, gender identity laws. I referenced these a month ago when I taught on transgender. Prairie Village, Prairie Village, uh, a football field length up the hill is considering a non-discrimination ordinance. Many of you know this. So I don't live in Prairie Village currently, but I came down and with my friend Eric Tietzel tried to speak a word, uh, just a word, just a word to this council, a word of witness, a word of testimony. And uh, Eric spoke uh, with great erudition uh, on the matters. I just kind of got up and said the first thing that came to my mind. Um, there were these youth council members from the local high school, I suppose, probably Shawnee Mission East. And um, so these four, these four youth council members, they're in high school, in other words, they're, they're wanting to get a taste of local government, I suppose, something like this. And so this was their night. This was their night to join the council, the night when the NDO, the non-discrimination ordinance, was being discussed. There were 150 people who showed up at this council meeting. Okay, right up, right up here. Suffice it to say, I don't think that's the norm. Uh, that's the norm. Probably like five times as many people normally show up. The, the person who gave the presentation on recycling in Prairie Village had a much bigger audience than she anticipated she was going to have. Let's put it that way probably usually would have about 15 people, some of them falling asleep. She had 150 people wrapped at attention learning about Chinese recycling practices. It was fascinating. I didn't know any of that stuff. So, so but then, then we get to this point where there's the, the open mic, not an open mic, you had to sign the sheet. And 30 people spoke up. He had three minutes each, which was a great measure, by the way. Wow. Uh, three minutes each and 26 spoke in favor of the non-discrimination ordinance. Now, that might sound initially like, well, they should. These kind of laws are the laws that have resulted in, in Oregon, a, a Christian couple not only losing their business because they refused to take pictures of a same-sex wedding. They, they perform services for people of all kinds, but in terms of a same-sex wedding, they declined to perform those services. And uh, as a result, the state of Oregon came after them and shut them down, and not only shut their business down, took every penny of their life savings. $135,000 this sweet Christian couple had saved up. And the state of Oregon, because of a law very similar to that, shut them down. Not a couple that was on all the conservative Facebook groups and these sort of things, just a couple that because, I'm on some of those, just a couple that because they dared to play by their Christian convictions, their convictions, convictions in the way anyone should, if you have a Holocaust background in your family, if family members perish in the Holocaust and somebody from uh, a neo-clan organization walks into your t-shirt business, you should have the right not to print up t-shirts for the clan rally, right? Shouldn't you have that right? Or let me flip it on us. If you're pro-choice and I come into your t-shirt, let's do t-shirts, and, and I come in wanting a t-shirt for a pro-life rally, you, you should, I think you should have the freedom to, to turn that down. But, but, I shouldn't have the ability to force somebody, to force a business owner to perform services, right, that violate their conscience. And that's what's all in view here. That's why, that's why Tietzel and others spoke up on these matters. But 26 people spoke in favor of this ordinance, the kind of ordinance that has brought the hammer crashing down on Christian people, men and women, just like you and me. So this is a very serious time. This is here. This is now. Um, our culture is forcing us to talk about these things, e even if we don't want to, even if we think, oh, this isn't that important. 
the culture is forcing you as a dad or mom to have these conversations with your kids because this is where we are. And it's good. It's actually good that we have these conversations. We need to have these conversations. By the way, thankfully, I think things got a little bit jammed up, and I don't think the city council approved the NDO uh, yet. It's hanging in the balance. I would encourage you to pray and, and track that if you, if you haven't been. It's a very serious thing um, for, for us all. Seventh, issues surrounding manhood and womanhood are, shocker here, ferociously controversial today. Carefully chosen adverb, ferociously. I don't need to spell that out. I've already given you material, I think, that uh, undergirds that point, point seven. But uh, suffice it to say, this is a challenge we face. And a lot of people um, are going to feel uh, nervous about talking about these things because they are so controversial. That is part of how the side of untruth wins. N not just in the hour of our battle or something, you know, for us to fall back, but for us to stop talking and for us to, in our homes, to not teach and for us in our workplace to not offer witness and for high school students and junior high students to be bullied into accepting that they believe secular views. That's part of how our culture wins. It's just to shut us down. It's just to make us go quiet. Now, we should not lose our witness. We should not be red-faced, angry, shouting people uh, in contending for the faith, any issue of the faith. But we need to know that that's a victory um, for those who would close down our witness, for us to be quiet and to say nothing. Those are seven challenges we face on these matters, and the challenges are serious. These are serious times on these matters. There's a florist, very similar to what I was talking about in Oregon, in Washington State, a florist who, again, declined to, to do the flowers for a same-sex wedding, has served gays and lesbians, so-called, for decades in her florist business, is not discriminating against them, but has a point of conscience when it comes to doing a same-sex wedding ceremony uh, in the way that every, every person, which is every Christian, every person should have that right of conscience. And uh, it's been in the Supreme Court. It's, it's a major, major deal. And it could come here. It could come here too, easily. Easily it could. So there are serious challenges, but you know what? We stand behind an invincible, undefeated God. And the Word of God is not bound, not even a little. That's the good news for us this morning. So we are going to seek to form a vision of the beauty of the sexes, this last section. Friends, we are going to build in the rubble in 2018. We are not ultimately concerned with what secular officials decide and rule. We are going, by the sheer grace of God, to train our children in what is right. We are going to hold fast to what is good and never let it go. That's our call. That's our charge. That's what we're going to do. So how do we do it? First, we start with faithfulness to the Bible. That's our goal. Honestly, as a Christian, that's really, at the end of the day, just about your only goal. What's your goal in life? To be faithful to God, which is to say, to be faithful to His Word. That's my goal. That's what the mission statement that we recite uh, weekly 
has, has us. That's what it drives us toward in every area of life to be regulated by the Word of God. That's it. To be faithful to the Bible on every issue, not just on issues of the gospel, not just on issues of salvation, not just on the identity of the church, to be faithful to God on every single issue that confronts us in this life, to have a comprehensive Christian worldview on every matter. That's our goal. That's your goal as a believer. It doesn't matter what position you have. It doesn't matter uh, ultimately what title people call you by. What matters is whether you are faithful to God and faithful to His Word. Are you going to be faithful to God? by His power, by His grace? Are you going to be the only person, perhaps, in a classroom, in your high school, in your workplace, who speaks up for God, for the truth of God? Do you know something? People derive tremendous confidence from even one person who will speak up against falsehood and evil. Tremendous confidence. You cannot calculate. You think, no, 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 wait. One person one against 500. Those odds don't calculate. The 500, of course, are going to trump the one. The one is never going to be able to rally supporters. Look at the Bible. Look at biblical history. Look at Gideon. Gideon is petrified, and God keeps pairing, thinning Gideon's army. He keeps doing it in the face of tremendous opposition. What is the Lord teaching us? The Lord is teaching us not to look as the natural man looks, not to calculate odds based on secular principles. When we have God, if it's only us standing there, if it's only us standing up for the truth, we have a majority. You have a majority. You're the only 11th grader willing to speak up in a class on these issues and say marriage is between one man and one woman. That's how God made it. That's what the natural body testifies. That's how children are produced. Your classmates hate you for that. Your coworkers, if you speak up, if you decline to attend some training event on these kind of things, they pour scorn on you. God is with you. You are being faithful to the Bible. If you have God and only you, you have a majority. Second, we see that the very first page of the Bible features God creating the man and creating the woman. We have referenced this already. So this is the beginning. <laughs> we're, we're used to talking about the age of the earth. Oh, we got to debate this. Genesis 1, let's go. Throw down. Let's debate this. Well, okay, we, let's, let's have those conversations. I love having those conversations over the age of the earth. I teach on them. I'm about to teach on them up north in just a few weeks at Midwestern in Theology 1 class. Yay. But you also have to see that the Bible is, is, is doing more than just referencing that discussion, building that discussion. God is creating the man and the woman. That's our starting point. So this is the first, listen, this is the first page of Scripture. This is the beginning. This is God's original intent and design. So this matters. This is not, in other words, uh, a kind of fourth-level issue. Sometimes you hear Christians suggesting some issues are this level issue, and I understand that. There are issues that have so-called dogmatic priority, theological priority, the doctrine of God, the gospel, yes. But be careful about ranking the Bible and biblical teaching. Just, be, just handle that with care. Because, for example, I'm not sure manhood and womanhood would necessarily, for some folks, be a first-level issue. I get that. But it's on the first page of the Bible, and, and God teaches repeatedly on manhood and womanhood throughout the text. So, we want to just note that. We want to note how important 
this is. And I actually think, as I was saying a minute ago, our culture is forcing us to get our arms back around how important this is. Many evangelicals moved away from this material, these doctrines. We're moving back toward it, in part because we have to. Third, we recognize that our senses are common sense. Reason, choose your phrase, shows us that the norm in our world is manhood and womanhood. Catholic thinkers talk about natural law. I don't exactly use the term natural law myself, though I I would use the term design, God's design. God has designed things. It makes, His design is not a loopy design, like some sort of weird Winnie the Pooh episode, you know, Disney version or something like this. No, no, no. God's design makes sense. It accords with reason. It's not determined by reason. It's supra-logical, God's intelligence, God's mind. And yet, if you are paying basic attention to the structure of humanity, there's manhood and there's womanhood, and there is a certain simpaticoness to this arrangement. It is right to recognize design in talking about these things. God has designed the sexes, and the sexes make sense. Fourth, in terms of forming a vision of the beauty of sexes, of the sexes, we integrate the sexes into our vision of the Christian life. What I mean here is that we don't see ourselves as a generic Christian. It's it's true that we are one, one body in union with Jesus Christ. But I would actually encourage you to see yourself as a Christian man or a Christian woman. I think the Bible teaches us to see ourselves in those terms. We're not doing something wrong if we see ourselves as a Christian man or a Christian woman. We're doing something right. Fifth, We work from the clear to the less clear on these matters. So we're going to talk about some contested areas, what it means, means, excuse me, for a man to be head of his wife, what it means for a wife to submit to her husband, what it means for a woman to be a worker at home, oikonergos in the Greek. What does that mean? There There are some places those discussions go that are less clear to us, and we have to work. But what we do is not say, oh, that's not directly tucked talked about in Scripture that's not directly mandated in Scripture, so it's a jump ball. What we do when there's something that's less clear, friends, this isn't just on this issue, this is in all of theology, all of doctrinal formation, is we take what is clear, we seek to understand it, love it, and believe it, we we recognize that forms in us wisdom, and then we we try to approach the gray areas with wisdom. So that's a little a little uh, comment on how we, we work, uh, how we answer the gray areas, how we handle them. We, we figure them out not by saying, that doesn't, that's not talked about explicitly, so you do whatever you want. That's, that's not a sound hermeneutic. That's not really a sound approach. A better approach is to say, okay, yes, this is gray. Let's, let's do the absolute best we can to work off of clear biblical teaching and use wisdom. We work from the clear to the less clear. Sixth, and finally, give, give you a few minutes if you want to ask anything this morning of me in just a few minutes remaining. We rejoice to watch as the gospel transforms us into godly men and godly women. Wow, what a joy. We recognize that Titus 2, Titus 2 is often referenced solely to talk about women and work, but it's actually about, <laughs> it's actually about the entire church. As for you, Paul says, to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Friends, as we conclude, this is what we are about. We are about putting the devil to shame by living as God-captivated men and God-captivated women. We are marching into the teeth of a secular culture in doing so. It can feel lonely and scary in that sense. But honestly, brothers and sisters, that is only what Christians have always done. This world has never truly been for us. This world has never been the home of the Christian. We are salt and light as much as we can be while we are here, but we are here to shame the devil and glorify Christ. Thank you.